Scratch Talking Heads frontman David Byrne live at Boston's Museum of Science on May 8th. David will be appearing to talk about what for centuries scientists and philosophers have called the eel question. Much of these mysterious creatures' life cycle remains a mystery even in our advanced scientific age. David will be joined by perhaps our greatest cultural authority on the eel question, Patrick Svensson, author of the acclaimed Book of Eels. Limited tickets remain, so please get yours at singforscience.org events. Sing for Science is made possible in part by a grant from the Simons Foundation. Today's episode was co-produced with the A.J. Reed Science Discovery Center at SUNY Oneonta, where it was taped in front of a live audience on December 6, 2023. Don't forget to check out our other episodes with guests like Pat Matheny, Jeff Tweedy, and Blondie. So please subscribe to Sing for Science on your podcast platform of choice. With climate change, our summer temperatures are getting warmer. Lakes are having longer periods of time to warm, so their surface temperatures are increasing as well. Um, and so once you get beyond a certain temperature, the cyanobacteria can really ramp up their reproduction and respond very fast. And so they grow to this overabundance, and when they're there in such a high volume, that's when they can be dangerous to animals and people. Welcome to Sing for Science, the show where musicians and scientists talk about music and science. I'm your host, Matt White. Each week, we'll talk about a song by our guest artist and how it connects with our guest scientist's area of expertise. Today, we'll be speaking with Jeremy Wall, co-founder of the best-selling jazz fusion band Spirogyra. Spirogyra formed in the 1970s and on a whim took its name from a type of algae. The band's story is an unusual one in that they found incredible popularity and mainstream success as a jazz group that played all instrumental music. The bright and upbeat title track of Spirogyra's third album, Catching the Sun, features equatorial instruments like the marimba, steel drum, and congas, further adding to what's curious about the band given that they hail from Buffalo, New York. Also joining us is lake ecologist Holly Waterfield. Holly conducts research for the SUNY Oneonta Biological Field Station, a 2,600-acre facility situated on the shores of Lake Otsego in Cooperstown, New York. A large part of Holly's work at the BFS is centered around helping manage the health of the lake by monitoring the threat of harmful algal blooms, or HABs. HABs are often caused by what's commonly known as blue-green algae, a type of cyanobacteria that produce toxins harmful to wildlife and human health. The prevalence of these blooms are a growing threat and that their occurrence is directly linked to rising lake temperatures associated with human-caused anthropogenic climate change. The title of this week's episode on the podcast is Catching the Sun, Algal Blooms and Rising Temperatures in New York's Lakes. Hello, Jeremy and Holly. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for having me. So I will offer this disclaimer as a card-carrying fan of jazz fusion, I hope this won't come off as a backhanded compliment. 
but I would like to start by asking, how is it possible that an instrumental jazz group from Buffalo can sell a million records? Well, that's, a, that's a really good question. Um, uh, I, I think ultimately the secret to our early success was the songs that uh, my partner Jay and I wrote. You know, we were sort of on what, what I would call the second wave of jazz fusion. You know, of course, Miles Davis was the start of this. And then the people who played with Miles, like Herbie Hancock uh, and Weather Report and Wayne Shorter and Chick Corea, were the first wave of the jazz fusion. And then, you know, bands like uh, Pat Metheny and Spyrogyra and, as you mentioned, the LA Express were sort of the, the second wave, you know. And But really, you know, we, we, uh, we wrote the music that we loved and um, just uh, sort of ride the, the front of this new wave that that sort of came along at that time and so there was there was a, a thirst for it yes yeah, sure yeah because i hear like steely dan seems like was kind of in that world absolutely and that's part of that uh, um, excellence of the sound of the music that was recorded at that time right. around the late 70s early 80s you mm -hmm. know there was just a a, a lushness to the uh, analog sound then. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about the term smooth jazz? Oh, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm not at all a fan of that, of mm -hmm. course, but it is an, a, uh, a reality in mm -hmm. the world. At least it's been, you know, for the last 20 years or something. Right. Um, and uh, listen, uh, I have been associated with it. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I cannot protest too strongly <laughs> against the term. Right. But so was that was that? Uh, a categorization that that was floating around during that time. Well, no, we were jazz fusion, right? Jazz fusion is right. what we've always done. Jazz fusion, you know, as far as a radio format, uh, smooth jazz was what came out of a very vibrant jazz fusion radio right. scene. Okay, I have such fascination with this period because I mean, you guys are playing amphitheaters. Mahavishnu Orchestra playing probably the Garden or something sure. like that, yep. you know. So, yes. what was the average fan of that music like? Wow, uh, you know, we've had um, promoters of jazz festivals have told mm -hmm. us that uh, uh, Spyrogyra kind of had its own audience. They said that you know there'd be other of the jazz groups or jazz artists who were very successful there would be a general audience but then there was a special spyrogyra crowd mm. that followed spyrogyra we we sort of had that and especially in the early years we kind of had the reputation of being a jazz band that played like a rock band mm. so that was kind of and there's a lot of improvisation i mean are there deadheads well, I, I actually, that's kind of what the uh, promoters compared us to a little bit. Like, okay. Like the Grateful Dead had right. their own little uh, following. And so, but you started, you guys started as a bar band, right? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were living in Buffalo. The big advantage of Buffalo is that there were so many bars that it was actually an excellent place to make a living playing live music. Mm -hmm. So uh, we were there playing mostly kind of, uh, oh, I don't know, sort of blues or R&B mm. things. And then we started a jam session one night a week playing the jazz fusion music that we kind of loved. And then it sort of just kept growing. And then there was this fateful moment where the owner of the bar said, OK, you really have to come up with a name. Mm. 
all right? And this is where uh, my partner Jay, remembering this term from biology class in high school, mm -hmm. came up with spirogyra, you know. Um, he came up with that and he, he, he said, that's it. We changed the spelling a little bit, you know. Um, the algae is S-P-I-R-O and we doubled the Y so that spirogyra is uh, S-P-Y-R-O G-Y-R-A. Mm. So we changed the spelling slightly. Is that something you're okay with, or do you get territorial with your algae, Holly? I'm okay with it. Okay. <laughs> so you're a bar band. I mean, are you dragging marimbas through the snow and buffaloes? Well, we, we didn't have marimbas then. You know, yeah. we were a smaller band then. Um, but yes, we were lugging electric pianos over the snowbanks. Yeah, yep, exactly right. <laughs> no, I get that. Well, that's that's also another one of the great incongruities about this band is that yeah. there's like this island sound to. Mm -hmm. how, so how did that come? The, the steel uh, drums and marimbas. And... We we love the music. I'm big fans of Brazilian music and mm -hmm. Latin music. Mm -hmm. So another big factor too, I think, for our our success too is that uh, I, there's really it's it's really happy music. I mean, it's yeah. really joyful, happy music, and uh, that Caribbean and Brazilian influence is a beautiful thing. I think. I agree. But but you know, I mean, you guys have your fair share of ballads and sure, you know, sure. and r&b and jazz and yes yeah, yeah many different styles yeah we incorporate a lot of different kinds of right. uh, genres in our music yeah and well so this gets at something that i always find interesting is talking to composers who write instrumental music mm -hmm. and especially kind of zeroing in on sources of inspiration because it's one thing to talk to a lyricist mm -hmm. who's written a love song mm -hmm. and they can very clearly point to the origin story of the song mm -hmm. but when you're composing instrumental music when tasked how do you describe that um well uh I, here's the analogy i kind of use in my songwriting class which i teach here at uh, suny oneonta which is the idea that there's a just a seed of an idea that you recognize as being significant uh bass line, a melody, a chord progression, uh, some musical element. That's the uh, inspirational part. And then the craft part of that is allowing that seed of an idea to take its shape in whatever way that it wants, mm -hmm. you know. And I think there's a way in which doing instrumental music maybe bring in a greater variety of sounds than we would if we were doing vocal music where mm -hmm. the maybe the the uh, vocal styles would sort of keep directing us to a certain kind of stylistic models whereas with instrumental music we were probably freer to try many many different things mm -hmm. and go in many different directions can you identify like an emotional component to it oh of course you know yeah. like when yes. in, that informs what you play and how oh, you play oh yeah yeah of course no i mean it's um it's the emotional connection with that seed that mm. is the power of the music mm -hmm. as a fan of music and of your band and all these other bands we're talking about just the harmony is so rich the way the chords move mm -hmm. i have such an emotional connection to the way those those tunes move the way that the way the chords go from one to the next well thank you to be honest that's actually a specialty of mine the, the, the chords I, and harmony i'm well right and as a pianist because it's all yes. in front of you right? yeah you yeah. know I, I love the band and well, so you. really appreciate you coming on here and I think as, as we turn to Holly we should probably get this out of the way first what can you tell us about spirogyra algae 
Well, they're beautiful, for one, under a microscope, anyway. Um, they are a filamentous algae. So this is a, a type of true algae that grows in long chain. A lot of the common names for Spirogyrus species uh, refer to hair in some way, like mermaid's tresses is one of the ones that I had seen. And so in the water, they look really beautiful. It's very hair-like, very mm. silky texture. When you lift them out of the water, that's you get the swamp monster look. Mm. Um, if you know you come out of that with an armful of spirogyra, you look like you've got sheets, curtains of <laughs> mm. green goo. But under the microscope, they're beautiful. And what you see are these spiraling chloroplasts, and that's where the chlorophyll is. That mm. is the pigment they use to do photosynthesis. So gathering light, converting that into energy, simple sugars. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, creating their power from the sun. And what are we looking at? Is that the cell wall that's that's forming the boundary there? Yep. You okay. can kind of see a gray line. And yes, that's a cell wall. And there's cells stacked end to end that form the hair-like filaments. Okay. I have a question for Holly. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so soon after we started the band uh, I actually saw in a uh, biology textbook this similar picture of spirogyra and the caption underneath said that spirogyra was the earliest organism that reproduces sexually do you know nothing about this? Nothing about that. Okay, you don't know. Anyway, <laughs> nothing. <laughs> and, and so, you know, it was this sort of suggestion that Spirogyra invented sex was the implication here. And actually, it was it was an idea that I kind of found appealing, to be, <laughs> I, to be honest. I'm with, I'm with you. Okay. Whatever <laughs> it takes to get people interested in algae, you know. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you just... right. All right. Well, we'll fact check that. And even if it's wrong, I'll okay. make sure it stays, stays in the episode. Um, well, so you brought up pho photo. Actually, before I ask you to describe photosynthesis, what can you tell us about your background? My background? Because I've never met a lake ecologist. Wow. Honored to be your first yeah. lake ecologist. Lake ecology is the study of lakes as ecosystems. So uh, we're studying everything about lakes. So lakes are places in the landscape where water is held, right, in large quantity. Um, and so we're studying interactions between uh, the underlying geology, the sediments, the water, and the physical attributes of water and how that changes over the course of the year. Uh, water forms the habitat, right, in a lake. So everything relies on the physical environment that's created by the water. So that changes, of course, with weather over the course of the year. So when we're thinking about ecology, we're thinking a lot about seasonal changes and how the organisms that live in lakes interact with that change and each other. So primarily you're looking at Otsego Lake. Yes, a days. lot of our focus at the biological field station is on Otsego Lake. It's the closest lake to us, um, and that was kind of built into our mission when the field station was established. Um, we were there, we, I was not part of that group. Um, the station was established to provide access to natural systems for faculty and staff to be able to get out and study and learn about these types of natural environments and try to build a body of knowledge so that we could understand how the lake was functioning and then, you know, solve problems as they arose and have arose. Okay. And 
you get, when you're mentioning like the the different layers it made me think because i've often wondered i know it's so deep it's at points mm -hmm. are there points where like at a certain depth water is insulated from temperature fluctuation yeah so during the summer the deepest part of the lake really from um trying to do some metric conversion in my brain here. You don't have to. <laughs> uh, from about 12 meters down, so that's about 45 feet mm -hmm. and, and below, the water temperature is pretty constant. Mm -hmm. um, it will, um, at that point, go from um, maybe 9 degrees Celsius to 4 to 5 degrees at the bottom. And Otsego Lake is about 170 feet deep give or take a few feet. Um, so there's really a huge volume of water that stays really cold all year long. Um, so Otsego Lake is unique in our part of the state in that it has that deep cold water that can support cold water fish like lake trout and um, lake whitefish. So it's a unique habitat within the Susquehanna drainage basin. Jeremy, you were talking about how one of the most evocative places for you is Council Rock, right? Yes. That uh, spot there where the uh, Susquehanna River runs out of Lake Otsego. Mm -hmm. And I just sit there and I just imagine that here's where this river is starting and it winds hundreds of miles through New York and Pennsylvania and it comes out by Baltimore. Yeah, it's right? amazing. It is an amazing, amazing river. And that is right, that one spot is right where the very beginning of it and then of course they have the little plaque about council rock that it was an indian meeting place which of course makes perfect sense because it does have kind of have that uh, special vibe to it to right. right there yep yeah can you tell us a little bit more about the history of the lake and just specifically how a, a water body like that would have formed yeah so um a glacier action is what forms these types of lakes. So very similar to the Finger Lakes in New York State, Otsego Lake would have been formed as a lobe of the glacier came southward and was carving away bedrock, soils that were in the way and kind of over deepening a valley that was already started. So I, what I've read is that there was a river valley there from previous you know, erosion and that valley was carved out further by the lobe of the glacier. And then during the period when it was melting or receding, think of all that rubble that gets churned up and pushed ahead of a glacier. As it melts and recedes, it leaves behind large quantities of stuff, <laughs> right? Um, so where the village of Cooperstown sits is kind of a natural dam. It's a, a moraine, a mound of rubble, soil, rocks, all kind of jumbled up, forming a solid mass and blocking that valley. And that's what's holding the water back and forming the lake. We have similar valleys on either side of Otsego Lake, the Cherry Valley, and where Canadarago Lake is now, kind of that Oaks Creek Valley. They're very similar in their formation and their structure, but the mounds of material that were left behind when the glaciers receded were very different. So the Cherry Valley is a dry valley. It has creek, ancient lake sediments in the soils, but no lake at the present time. And then Canadarago Lake has a lake, obviously, but it's much shorter and it's shallower um, and it has an extensive wetland to the south. So just the way that the materials were left behind as those glaciers melted from the valleys really changed what the landscape looks like today. But that's how we had a lot of our lakes are glacial. 
so did but did the glacier <clears throat> melt all of its contents in that spot or did it continue on its path of that destruction is a very good question um i think i don't know if anyone knows for sure but yeah. for some period of time there were um ice dams in some of the valleys so it wasn't just like it slowly completely receded from the valleys there were would have been pockets of ice left behind dams that were in place at that point but broke and then you know those floodwaters would have gone uh downstream does that answer your question yeah. okay but so there must have been some amount of material at the site of Cooperstown to hold the water in yeah. before the glacier. Right. And I, there are probably estimates out there of how deep that deposit is. You know, it's hundreds of feet of material, probably. Okay. Well, let's get into the, the point of main concern, which are the harmful algal blooms here. Um, and it's, you know, I will let you drop the bomb on our listeners here to tell us what algal blooms are not and that they do not in fact have algae. That is absolutely true. These uh, harmful algal blooms, it is a bit of a misnomer. So cyanobacteria and algae are not technically related to one another, right? They're not the same type of organism. Um, algae, or true algae, have cell wall, uh, different type of structure. Um, cyanobacteria are much more primitive and they are actually a bacteria. So here is an example of microcystis, a species of cyanobacteria. This is the species that's responsible for the blooms we've been having in Otsego Lake. There are, I'm not sure how many species of cyanobacteria, thousands maybe. They're a very primitive form of life. They're what oxygenated our atmosphere. Uh, really? So you can thank them for many things. <laughs> um, Wait, and how does that work? So back in the day, a uh, long time ago, when our atmosphere was very different chemically, cyanobacteria were doing photosynthesis and producing oxygen as a byproduct. And so far as I have learned in my life, that's what contributed to oxygen being put into the atmosphere mm. and allowing, you know, more complex forms of life to right. exist. Pretty wild. That. Yeah. <laughs> So, okay, we'll balance our fear of them with some gratitude. Yeah, yeah. But really, the, the harmful part comes from when they are growing in, you know, a huge abundance and forming scums and accumulations on the shores of our lakes, there can be toxins present. Mm -hmm. So, And so what's the toxin that they produce? There are quite a few toxins that are produced. This uh, microcystis is known to produce a class of toxins called microcystins. And those are liver toxins and tumor promoters. Oh man, I didn't so, know it was that bad. Yes, <laughs> it can be that bad. So animals have died. Locally, we haven't seen that high level of toxicity. So that's a good thing. People are also very aware and they're on the lookout for these kinds of things now. So they're able to kind of judge for themselves what level of risk they're comfortable with. Um, but there are quite a few toxins produced um, by different types of cyanobacteria and they can be pretty potent. The long-term exposure to low doses isn't really well understood and I think that's where it being classified as a tumor promoter comes in. We don't really know much about how much exposure 
leads you to, you know, a problem. Okay. And so the cyanobacteria, this, the similarity it bears to algae is that it uses photosynthesis. That's correct. Yes. So they're, they're both photosynthesizing. They have some of the same pigments, but they are very different from one another. And actually, evolutionarily speaking, cyanobacteria were probably incorporated into a cell that was the first algae. It was like a symbiotic relationship. So without cyanobacteria, it sounds like maybe we wouldn't have true algae. Okay. And could while we're here, could you give us a, a refresher on photosynthesis? Um, yes. Uh, <laughs> so that's a process whereby plants and algae are using the pigments to collect light energy and they split water and carbon dioxide apart and so they're getting energy and making sugars for use in their own metabolism the calvin cycle is involved somewhere in there what's the calvin cycle you don't want to know okay uh, well what do you mean when you say like we all learned it once and we've all maybe okay. forgotten <laughs> well so when you're saying pigments what do you mean pigments like chlorophyll okay. cyanobacteria are named cyano because they also have blue-green pigments um, mm. one's called phycocyanin so there's all these chemical compounds that are colored and absorbing different wavelengths of light okay I have a question so does mm -hmm. that mean that the cyanobacteria is intermingled with the algae and that's the danger is that it looks like algae, but then there are is also bacteria within that. Is that the yeah? So that can be part of it. Um, in a lake, you know, we've got we, they get lumped together because functionally they're both doing photosynthesis, right? And they are part of the base of the food chain in that regard. So they're using light energy and they are generating oxygen and sugars that then the other higher levels of the food web can use. So that's why they there's kind of a, a misnomer there is because mm, okay. they're occupying that producer level of the food web. Okay. Yeah. You know, if this happens year in, year out, what are the long-term effects on life cycles, lake health? Well, I think in terms of life cycles, I don't think that we have those answers yet. Um, there's a lot of really complicated interaction going on in lakes and they're all different. You know, the lake basins themselves are different. The amount of water they hold is different and the species that live in them are different. You know, each lake is kind of its own mix of things. And so I don't know the answer to that question. I'm not sure if, I can't imagine it's great, yeah. but cyanobacteria have been around for billions of years. Mm -hmm. So they're becoming a problem because we are creating the conditions where they really flourish and they're in a spot where we want to be at the same time. Right. So in some lakes and wetland systems, they've always exhibited cyanobacteria blooms, uh, but they've become prevalent in lakes where we don't typically expect to see them. And that is really a result of things that people have done on the landscape, right? That change how water flows across the landscape and what pollutants it may carry to a body of water. And so we've kind of changed the dynamics in these systems in a way that now along with our climate change, we're seeing these pop up in more and more places and we're looking for them. So part of the news about it is that we're paying attention. We've done a really great outreach 
job and people are looking for them and finding them, right? So they've always been there. I don't know what the long term. Okay, so these are... Yeah, so this photo is, uh, you see this light green speckling through. Um, what you're seeing here is kind of an early stage of a microcystis bloom right along the shore of a lake. And the, the big green stripes you see are like broken off pieces of aquatic plants that just kind of float, you know, to the shore. Uh, but the cyanobacteria is that kind of olive green, yellowish green speckling. What can you tell us about just the day-to-day -day of how you experiment and how you collect data? Well, most of my work is monitoring. So I'm going out when we start to see these blooms and kind of cataloging what we see visually and then testing water samples in the lab for toxin concentrations. So we can get a better handle on uh, the link between what things look like and what the risk is actually going to be to somebody wading into the water or bringing their pets to the lake. I think one thing I didn't mention was that a tricky thing about cyanobacterial blooms is that not all of them produce toxins. The toxins aren't always there. And even genetic strains of the same species may not all produce toxins under the same condition. So it's creating an issue where it's hard to predict what the risk is. So giving people information that they can use to evaluate what they're comfortable with, you know, and making decisions about whether or not to go in the water is really tough. So are you kind of sometimes as a scientist in the local voice on the topic, are you caught between varying interests like commerce, homeowners? Very much so. Uh, people want to know that they can go in the water. Right. <laughs> they don't want, they don't want me to tell them that I'm not sure or no, you shouldn't go in. Sometimes I'll get a question about, well, are your kids swimming? Mm. And they say, no, they are not swimming this week. And mm. they you know, take that with a grain of salt. Uh, but sometimes people try to talk me into the idea that maybe it's not as dangerous as you think it is. Uh, and I think, well, that's your choice. <laughs> this is like, you're like Richard Dreyfus in Jaws when he's fighting with the mayor to keep the beaches open. You should just send people that clip. Okay, so you'd mentioned that in addition to climate change, just the way that we've affected water flow, how does that play out on Otsego Lake? Nearly everything that we do on the landscape changes the way water flows. You know, just think of sidewalks are impermeable you know when it rains water goes downhill off of them somewhere right mm -hmm. so roadways ditches um, agriculture our yards our wastewater all of that stuff has nutrients that end up in a water body somewhere so some of that goes into groundwater groundwater eventually ends up in a stream in a lot of cases or somebody's drinking water so nutrients are flowing to our water bodies in a larger amount than they used to and nutrients are something that algae need along with their plentiful sunlight in order to grow so if you think of the nutrients that run off of your lawn are kind of like a fertilizer once they reach the lake mm. so we're contributing in a lot of ways to increase nutrients that green stuff uses mm -hmm. to grow in the lake, whether it's plants or algae, things will utilize those nutrients once they get there. 
And are you able to measure that and say, like, this is where that's coming from and that's where this is coming from? Well, the way that we typically would assess a lake or a watershed is to measure water in a lot of different places. So we're taking water samples in the lake from the surface to the bottom every couple of weeks, and we're testing for different forms of nitrogen and phosphorus and some basic uh, minerals and things like that. We also go around to different stream sites and measure what's flowing into the lake from different portions of the watershed. And so we are trying to get a better handle on which streams have the greatest amount of nutrients coming in so we can prioritize grant funding to help address if it's um, farming or golf courses or homeowner education, whatever might need to be done in that particular watershed and try to pinpoint where the most efficient use of that money would be. Okay. And and I know that you're in charge mostly of monitoring and you probably don't have any good news on this front, but what can what can we say about remediation efforts? Is there any hope on that front? I would say we don't know. Um, we don't know what to expect for a lake like Otsego Lake is deep, it's clear, generally clear water, relatively low nutrients than other lakes that you may typically associate with being green, you know. So it may depend largely on climate factors. So in a given year, we may see strong blooms, but I would predict it's not going to be every year. Um, I think the right combination of environmental conditions have to come together for us to have kind of a bad year like we had in 2022. This past summer was much better. We did still have days where we had bloom conditions, but the worst days were far better than what we had in 2022. So I think it's going to be variable and hard to predict, which is probably the worst part about it, yeah. is it keeps you guessing and have to be vigilant about looking at the conditions before you visit. And so this last summer, was it a better one because of rain? Like, does the rain just churn the water and it? Well, I don't know if we could really answer that yet. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if we will be able to answer it even after we have all of our data in for the year. There are scientists working on answering these questions at every level of government and in academia, private research firms, everybody is trying to better understand what leads to cyanobacterial blooms and why they're different in each, you know, each lake. So there, there's no easy answer. There's not a solution that's going to fit every lake situation. Right. So I would imagine private research firms, are they testing out a product that might be able to nullify its effects or something? Some of them are. Um, so there's people doing research about different treatments that you could apply to water, different, you know, sonication to break cells open and keep a bloom from forming in the first place. How do you do that? Uh, sound waves. Really? <laughs> For real? Um, yeah. Uh, so there and there are devices on the market for things like that. Um, Blast ACDC. Yes. <laughs> uh, so there's really a lot of innovation going on in a lot of different places to try to deal with these issues, and it it's interesting and fascinating and frustrating all at the same time. Is it? But there's no silver bullet. There's, no. Hmm. No, it's going to take a combination of, of maybe short-term solutions where you tackle what's going on in the lake 
proactively, you know, one summer to stop a bloom from forming, maybe. I don't know if a lake like Otsego Lake is so big, it's so much water. I don't know if there are things like that that can work there. But then also doing long-term work in the watershed to keep nutrients out. So septic systems, on-site wastewater treatment is a, a source of nutrients, farming, road ditching, you think of winter road maintenance, we have a lot of salt that goes on the roads and just general soil erosion. So there's a lot of sources out there that any one of them on their own is not going to cause a problem, but the combination is cumulative. You mentioned that the same organism can, in some cases, produce toxins and then in other cases not produce toxins. I mean, right there, that just throws a, a, a big question mark on on everything that you do. That's a uh, tough situation to deal with that it's, that it's not even consistent with a given organism what they what they do. So that's I, I hear you. Yeah. Best Thank of you. luck to you. Holly. Yes. Thank yes. So yeah. um, are there questions from the audience because our guests have generously offered to entertain a Q&A. Here let me I'm going to fill Donahue this mic over to you. I guess this would be more of a holly question. With cyanobacteria being reliant on photosynthesis, do you only see them a certain depth? Are they in the entire water column? That's a really good question. They're mobile. Uh, cyanobacteria can gain, have a competitive advantage over other algae because they can control their buoyancy, some species. So, um, you know, there are many ways that cyanobacteria grow. Some of them are benthic and just grow on the bottom. Others that are out in the open water are migrating daily to be able to get down deep to where there may be nutrients they can utilize. Um, they can then float, become more buoyant and shade out other species and get up into the light. So they've, they've really got some cool adaptations. Um, and depending on what species you're looking at, you may find it at different places in the water column. Does that answer your question? It does, thank you. <laughs> should we not pee in the lake? You should not pee in the lake. <laughs> I think that's what I'm supposed to say today. That's my thought. <laughs> Thou shalt not. <laughs> it's a source of phosphorus. <laughs> How do you collect water at the bottom of a lake? That is a very good question. Um, we have some devices that you prop open, and it, there's a trigger button on it, and you lower it on a cable down to the bottom. So if you can imagine a PVC pipe you know, about six inches around with plunger caps on either end. We lower this down to the bottom or whatever depth we want to sample and we send down a heavy weight that rides along the cable and it smashes the button and the plungers close. And so it traps the water in the PVC pipe and then we haul it up and there's a little spigot on the bottom and so we put it into a bottle. Glad you asked. I'm curious about the continuous lake monitoring buoys. Do you guys use that at all in your research? 
We do, uh, to some degree, a colleague of ours operates the continuous monitoring buoy. So we're not using the data all the time, but on the days where I go out and sample, we're usually comparing what we see to the buoy data. And if we're having blooms, I'm using that buoy data to kind of keep tabs on what the surface water temperatures are like out at mid-lake um, and make my own predictions about how bad things might get. <laughs> so yeah, we're using it. And I think Dr. Yakoda is planning to use it for a whole host of work. And do you think the zebra mussels present in the lake have an effect on these harmful algal blooms? Uh, there is proposed to be some sort of a link between invasive zebra mussels and quagga mussels. And that is a very active field of research right now. The thought is that there's some change in the way that nitrogen is available. And nitrogen is really important to cyanobacteria, especially microcystis. And so there is thought to be some link, but we don't know exactly what's going on there. But many of the more clear water lakes, um, especially some of the finger lakes that also have zebra and quagga mussels now have microcystis blooms. And so there's a pattern forming there and people are trying to figure that out. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jeremy Wall and Holly Waterfield. For more information about Jeremy's career and discography with Spirogyra, you can visit his Wikipedia page, Jeremy underscore Wall. And you can stay up to date with Holly's research by visiting her lab's website, suny.oneonta.edu slash biological-field-station. Sing for Science is co-produced by TalkHouse and made possible in part by a grant from the Simons Foundation. Our music is by Panoram. Social media manager is Bailey Constance. Location engineers, Chelsea McCracken and Logan Mendez. And digital producer is Keenan Cush. Special thanks to Anna Rudenbeck, Eliana Moyer, Tracy Allen, Jessica Reynolds, Karen Teller, Jill Shea Fury, and Rob Poulet for helping make today's episode happen. If you like the show, the best way you can support us is to give us a review Tell a friend about the show and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. For more information, go to singforscience.org and follow us on social media at Sing for Science. Thanks for listening.